0: Well, good evening. Welcome back to our Wednesday night Bible study here at the Church of Christ on McDermott Road. We are so thankful that of all the things you could be doing this evening, you've chosen to be with us and to spend some time studying scripture. We're specifically thinking about Jesus being our example. Our title is Jesus, My Example in a Life Interrupted. So many times in life and the last few months, I'm sure we've all felt this way, that life doesn't always go the way we want it to or the way that we think that it will. So our life and the direction that it's headed often gets interrupted and things come up and people do things and say things and events occur and things unfold in a way that's different than we thought that they would or that we wanted them to. And when that happens, we especially need to fix our eyes on Jesus and allow Jesus to be our instructor, our teacher, and also our example in how we respond to people and circumstances when they don't go the way that we think that they will, when we don't go the way we want them to. And so we're looking to Jesus. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're allowing Jesus to be our example in various aspects and areas of our life. Tonight, we're thinking about Jesus being our example in the area of compassion and care, that Jesus is my example to be compassionate and caring. And it occurs to me as we start to think about this and think about this topic, that we're all compassionate. We're all caring. Everyone in the world, I mean, there may be some sociopaths out there that are not compassionate or caring towards anyone at any time under any circumstance, but most people, almost everyone is compassionate and caring towards someone, right? almost everyone in the world. You could pick a random person off the street. It doesn't matter their religion. It doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter what they think or what they want in life. It doesn't matter how they identify themselves. It doesn't matter what they think of other people. Towards someone, towards someone, they will be compassionate and caring. There will be circumstances in which they're compassionate and caring. But we tend to be very selective about who gets our compassion. Where does our care go? To whom are we compassionate? For whom are we compassionate? Who do we show care towards? That's that's also what we have to look to Jesus as our example about. We have to look to Jesus and ask him not only how should I be compassionate, but to whom should I be compassionate? Not only how should I care for people, but what sorts of people ought I I to be caring for? Who ought I to be caring for? Where should my compassion and my care be directed? That's really what we need Jesus to instruct us about, because again, we're all pretty naturally compassionate and caring towards some people. And typically, those some people are people that like us, people that are like us, people that look like us and think like us and vote like us and talk like us and come from our background, people that share our values, people that share our ideas. Towards those people, we tend to naturally be compassionate and caring, especially the closer they are in our circle. Towards our own immediate family, we're especially caring and compassionate. Towards our next door neighbors, maybe, we're caring and compassionate. Towards our extended family, we're caring and compassionate. But the further out of that inner circle that we get, do we still tend to be caring and compassionate? These are the things that Jesus teaches us to examine and to think about, teaches us to reframe and rethink how we practice compassion and care for other people. Our text tonight that I want to start with, we're going to look at two different texts. The first one is from Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Matthew writes, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, first of all, let's talk about tax collectors. You probably know that tax collectors were not well liked in the Jewish community of the first century. They worked for the Romans, maybe even more specifically, they worked for a chief tax collector who would have been probably a pretty wealthy person who bid for the position of collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. And that might be a Greek or a Roman person. And they bid on the job in order to subcontract for Rome and to go in and to collect the taxes and then give a portion of what was collected to Rome and keep a portion of it for themselves. And so it was a very lucrative business to be in the business of tax gathering and tax collecting. But they would also have contractors who worked for them. They would hire Jewish men, particularly, to work for them. And these were these, this was the brute force that would go out and would actually do the collecting of the taxes. So most of these people, like Matthew, may not have been wealthy at all. They they may have been sort of like thieves and robbers, only they were sanctioned by the government. And the government allowed them, and in fact, took a portion of the revenue that these men would be at their booths at various crossings or maybe at a bridge. And if you wanted to cross that bridge and go into the town or the village or the city and sell your goods, you had to give that tax collector whatever he asked for. And if he asked you to unload your wagon and he took whatever he took, he had the legal right to do that. And so they were thieves and robbers. And what made it even more humiliating and and bad was the fact that these were Jewish men. Rome was occupying Jerusalem and Judea. They were occupying Israel. And these Jewish men were working for the Romans and were stealing from their own countrymen. These were the worst of the worst, and people hated them and despised them. They were oppressive. They were awful. They were stealing not just from others, but they were stealing from their own kinsmen, their own relatives, the people of their own nationality. And so, of course, the Jewish people couldn't stand them, not only because they were connected to the Gentiles, to the Romans, but also because they were thieves. They were bad people doing bad things, oppressive things. And then Matthew also calls some of the people that came to the table at Matthew's house sinners. And that's a very broad word. And you might wonder, well, why does Matthew label some people as sinners? Well, These are people that were marginalized in the community, people that were kicked to the margins. They had made choices or they were living a certain kind of lifestyle that made them unwelcome in the Jewish community. So you had tax collectors, and then you had all of these other people, whoever they might have been, whatever choices they might have made, put them on the out so that people would not accept them, would not welcome them, would not receive them, would not eat at the same table as them. They were unclean. They were unworthy. They were Disinherited from Israel. And the people said, We don't want to have anything to do with you. Your choices, your lifestyle put you outside of the community. Now, of course, by eating with them, Jesus isn't condoning oppression. Jesus isn't condoning these tax collectors stealing from their countrymen. He's not condoning stealing at all. He's not condoning Rome. He's not condoning whatever it is that these sinners did. But he is receiving them. He is showing them compassion. He didn't condone their sin, but he did show them compassion and care and let them know, I love you and I want to have a relationship with you. Look at verse 11. It says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were upset, of course, because the Pharisees Made it their way of life, in fact, the word Pharisee means to be separate, and so they made it their life to separate themselves from sin, not only from the Gentiles but also from compromising Jews like the tax collectors and the sinners and so they were asking the disciples of Jesus, Why does your teacher eat with those people and that if we're going to if we are going to learn from Jesus, if we are going to allow Jesus to, to teach us how to be compassionate and caring. We have to ask ourselves, to whom would we say this? Or about whom would we say this? Who would we say? Why is Jesus eating with those people? we all have people that we think, oh yeah, yeah, these kinds of people, they're marginalized in our culture, and we really need to reach out to them and show them compassion and be caring towards them, and the culture has really shut them out, and the the culture has really shut them down and said there's no place for you here, and the culture has really kicked them to the margins. But what about you? Who are the people that you have a tendency to kick to the margins? Maybe it's Pharisees. I saw a tweet this week from Tim Keller, an author who said, the fastest way to become a Pharisee is to hate Pharisees. You see, it might drive us crazy to know that Jesus also had plenty of meals with Pharisees. Even though they had all kinds of problems and were doing all kinds of things wrong, Jesus had dinner with Pharisees. He didn't hate the tax collectors or the Pharisees. And if we want to become a Pharisee, the best way to become a Pharisee or the fastest way to become a Pharisee is to hate the Pharisees, is to say, why is Jesus eating with those people? Why is Jesus eating with legalistic people? Why is Jesus eating with those kind of people who think like that and do those sorts of things? We need to not just ask who are the marginalized people in our culture, but we need to ask ourselves, who do I think deserve to be marginalized ask yourself who do you think deserves to be marginalized because there's somebody that you think that about isn't there there are groups of people that you think those people they don't deserve to have a voice Those people, they don't deserve to sit at the table. Those people don't deserve to be part of the community. Those people need to be shunned. Those people need to be kicked out. And maybe what they've done is atrocious. Maybe there is no excuse for the things that they've said or the things that they've done. But who are those people? Because whoever those people are, those are probably the people that if Jesus was having dinner with them, you and I would look and say, Why is Jesus eating with those people? Who are the people that you think deserve to be marginalized? Because if you had asked the religious Pharisees about those people, the tax collectors and the sinners, they would have said, of course they're marginalized, but they deserve to be marginalized. They deserve to be kicked to the outskirts of the community. They've forfeited their right to be part of this family, to be part of this community, to be part of us. And then, when this rabbi comes, that people are saying he might be the Messiah, Jesus is eating with them. And so, if we're going to practice the same kind of compassion and care, if we're going to care for the marginalized, if we're going to care for the people that others have pushed aside or set aside, then we have to ask who is it that I think deserves to be marginalized? Because that's probably the kind of person. With whom Jesus would be eating, and we would be scandalized, and we would say, Why is Jesus eating with them? So, if we want to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes and learn from his example, that's the kind of question we need to ask. And then it says in verse 12, But when he heard it, when he heard this question, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus is quoting when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea chapter six and verse six. And Hosea is all about God calling his people. He keeps calling to them yet they continue to be unfaithful. He keeps saying, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me, and they keep going away and they will not listen to him. And all God wants from them is, I want you to love me. I want your faithful love. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your ceremonies. I don't want your rituals. What I desire is your steadfast love. What I desire is your return. What I desire is your repentance. What I desire is your devotion. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the the Septuagint uses the word mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It isn't that God wants, obviously, God doesn't want his people to show him mercy. It's that he wants to show them mercy. God is saying to his people, I desire to show you mercy, not to demand sacrifice. I desire to show you mercy, not to demand sacrifices from you. All I want is for you to come and love me and be devoted to me and then to show mercy to others. I want to show you mercy and I want you to show mercy to others. That's what I want, more than your sacrifices, more than your rituals, more than your ceremonies. What I want is your love. What I want is your devotion. What I want is to show you mercy, not to demand from you sacrifices. That's what God has always desired, is to show his people mercy, and then to have his people show mercy to others. And isn't that what Jesus is saying? Jesus came to extend mercy to sinners. That's what Jesus came to do. Not to heal the people that are already well, but to heal the people who are sick, to extend mercy to sinners. And so Jesus is quoting God, saying this is what God desires. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so of course, when the Son of God comes, when the Messiah comes, of course this is what he's going to be doing. Showing mercy, extending mercy calling people, calling sinners, calling the broken, calling the people that everybody has said they're beyond hope, they're beyond healing, they're beyond fixing. They, they deserve to be on the outside of the community. It's those people that God has always, always had a heart for and said, I want you to sit at my table. I want you to be part of my family. I want to show you mercy. And so Jesus says, Go, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees had the wrong idea about God. They thought what God desires is sacrifice, right? What God desires is for you to make it right. You broke it and you need to make it right. You broke it and you need to fix it. You broke it and you need to make restitution. You need to make things right. You need to fix this broken relationship. And God has always said, from Hosea to Jesus, God has always said, no, I just want to show you mercy. If you'll just come back to me, if you'll just return, if you'll just repent, if you'll just give yourself to me, you don't have to make it right. It isn't about what you deserve. It's about what you need. And what you need is mercy. But the Pharisees had the wrong idea about God. And they looked at these tax collectors and these sinners and they said, you deserve what you're getting. You deserve God's punishment. If you wanna be back in the community, you need to make things right. You need to fix everything that you broke. You need to offer your sacrifices. You need to do all of these things. And Jesus comes and when these sinners begin to come towards God, Jesus begins to move towards them and sits down and has a meal has a meal with them and of course that drives the Pharisees up the wall but it it makes them it it makes them so angry because they don't understand God that what God desires is mercy not sacrifice what God really desires is for sinful people to come home and have the opportunity to show his mercy and his steadfast love to them now along the same lines, look at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse one. And again, this is probably a text you're pretty familiar with. It says in Luke chapter 15 and verse one, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. They grumbled and said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now, I want you to notice before we get to the, these three parables that the the sinners and the tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus. Isn't it interesting how compassion is attractive to hurting people? Hurting people are drawn towards compassion. Compassionate people that have their arms wide open, hurting people are drawn towards compassion. Compassion is attractive to hurting people, but it's repulsive to self-righteous people. Notice that, that compassion, the compassion of Jesus is attractive to hurting people, but it is repulsive to self-righteous people. Why is that? Why is it that self-righteous people find mercy so repulsive? Because self-righteous people believe that everything they have, they have because they deserve to have it. I have this because I've done well. I've done what I was supposed to. That's why I have a relationship with God. That's why I get his blessings. That's why I have hope. That's why I have a future because I did the right things and I made the right choice. And so when mercy gets extended, self-righteous people are repulsed by that. I mean, think about the way Jonah responded when God showed his mercy towards Nineveh. Jonah was self-righteously indignant. He said, I can't believe that you're showing mercy to them. And here we're seeing the exact same thing. And instead of Ninevites, we have tax collectors and sinners. And God is having dinner with them. And the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes say, we don't like that. They are repulsed by compassion. They are repulsed by mercy because they don't think they need mercy. Because they think that everything they have, they deserve to have that. Look at verse 4, same chapter. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, Jesus tells three different parables, and I want you to notice the similarities. Sometimes we talk about the differences between this lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, but I want you to notice the similarities. And one of the important parts of each parable is the rejoicing. You see, in Verse 5 and verse 6 and in verse 7, it's all about rejoice and rejoice and joy. It's all about the rejoicing. This is the way you react when something valuable was gone, but now it's back. When the thing is gone, it's lost it's out there somewhere and I don't have it anymore. But when it's back here in my possession and I have it again, there's rejoicing and there's joy and everybody rejoices that the lost thing has been found. And of course, this all pertains to Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, saying, this is how you ought to respond. These lost people that were on the outskirts, these people that were marginalized, these people that had been kicked out and were no longer part of the family, no longer part of the community, they're coming home. So we should celebrate, we should rejoice and have great joy. In verse 8, he says, Or what woman? Again, same thing that he said in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire to show my mercy rather than all the sacrifices in the world. What I love, God is saying, what God loves, what heaven rejoices over is broken people being made whole is lost people being found. This is what makes heaven rejoice. It isn't all the sacrifices. It isn't all the ceremony. It isn't all the ritual. It's lost people who once were lost, but now they're found. So Jesus is saying, of course, this is what I'm doing. Of course, these are the people that I'm eating with because they're lost. And now they're coming home. And of course, I'm rejoicing. Of course, I'm having a party. Of course, I'm celebrating. This is exactly the kind of thing that makes heaven rejoice, is when a sheep that's lost is found, or when a coin that's lost is found, or when a son is lost and found. Look at verse 11. And he said, said, there was a man who had two sons, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Now, you, you might read this and you think, you know what? That's, that's what he deserved. He was, he was ungrateful. He was rebellious. He took his inheritance and he left and he squandered it and a famine came and he lost everything. You know what? That's what happens. You reap what you sow. You, you, you did bad things and bad things happen to you. So you might read this story and say, the the son is getting what he deserves. And and, and that's true. He is getting what he deserves. And then it says, verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and, here's the phrase, felt compassion. Felt compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father isn't interested in retribution. He isn't interested in the son paying back everything that he squandered away. He doesn't say, okay, son, you're going you're to have to work many years before you make back, make good, fix everything that you broke. He doesn't say anything like that. Instead, he simply celebrates. Why? Because he says, my son was dead to me and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. So of course, he's not interested in sacrifices. He's not interested in restitution. He's not interested in retribution. He's not interested in getting back or getting even. He's only interested in mercy. And this exactly, this is exactly the picture that the whole Bible gives us of God. This is what God wants for his people. I want you to come home, I want you to be made whole. I want you to repent. I want you to come back to me. I want to show you mercy. And then to have you show mercy to each other. He's only interested, of course, because he's a father. He's only interested in his son's well-being. You were dead and now you're alive. You were gone and now you're home. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music, and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you notice how the brother, this older brother, has no compassion, no care? His only concern is for himself. He tells his father, why don't you celebrate my sacrifices? Why don't you celebrate my righteousness? Why don't you celebrate all the good things that I've done? And his father, shockingly so. It might be a little shocking. The the father is more interested in mercy than in sacrifice. He's more interested in showing mercy towards the son who came home than he is the sacrifices and the hard work and the diligence of the one who stayed there. That's not to say that those things weren't important or that it was a bad thing that the older son stayed and did what he was supposed to do. But this is God's heart. God's heart is that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. God wants lost people to come home. And of course, we all read this story. and We say, thank you, God, that you're like that because I was the prodigal son. I was the one who went away and I did bad things and I've come back. And now thank you that you've shown me mercy but that's not really the point of this parable. The point of this parable is not to put yourself in the shoes of the prodigal son. The point of this story is to rebuke the people that are acting like the older son. Because remember the context. The context is there are these Pharisees, scribes, who are being like the older brother. So what's all the partying about? What's all the celebrating about? What's this music and dancing you got going on over here? Why are you eating with these people that have squandered their inheritance? These people that have done things that are so inexcusable and wrong, why are you celebrating with them? Why are you rejoicing with them? Why are you having a party with them? And Jesus explains, because this is what you do when you find a lost sheep. This is what you do when you find a lost coin. This is what you do when your son was dead, but now he's alive. When your son was lost, but now he's come back home. You rejoice. You celebrate because God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Look at verse 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was It was only appropriate. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The Pharisees and the scribes should have done exactly this because that's what heaven was doing. Heaven was throwing a party. Heaven was celebrating because these sinners, these people that had been so broken, so, so disobedient, so rebellious, that had gone away and they were on the outskirts, marginalized by the community. And again, the community, the religious, God fearing community, said they deserve to be marginalized. Don't feel sorry for them. They deserve to be marginalized. And Jesus shows up and shows them compassion and care. And instead of running away from them, he runs towards them. And, if, and instead of saying, You're unworthy, he says, You're valuable. He says, In fact, in fact, I'm gonna leave the 99 and go after you. And again, that makes us feel really good if we feel like we're the one. And it's true, we are the one. Jesus came and rescued us. But but we have to begin to reflect on the times where we're the 99, because 99% of the time we're the 99, we're the religious people that are saying, hey. What about us? We're over here doing what we're supposed to, Lord. Where's our party? Where's our celebration? And Jesus says, No, no, no. Right now is the time to go and take care of the one, the one who has the need, the one who has the brokenness, the one who's hurting. I'm going after him. I'm going after her. And you need to have the same type of reaction, the t- same type of rejoicing, the same type of celebration. This is what the shepherd does. When he comes home and he brings the one with him, he calls all of his friends and says, hey, rejoice with me. And heaven is doing the same thing, saying rejoice with me. Someone who is lost has now been found. And so we have to ask ourselves, who are those people that we would say, why is Jesus eating with them? Who are the people that we think deserve to be marginalized, deserve to be kicked out, deserve to not be shown compassion and care. The ones we think deserve to be cut off. And then we have to realize those are the people probably who most need our compassion and care. So I want to ask this question. What would it look like to follow Jesus' example of compassion and care? I want to make three suggestions based on the text we just read. Three suggestions about what it looks like to follow Jesus's example of compassion and care. The first one is exactly what they accused Jesus of, receive sinners, open your arms to the marginalized. Now, again, that doesn't mean condoning sin. It doesn't mean that we say there's you, you've not done anything wrong. Jesus called sin, sin. These people were repenting. They were changing their behavior. They were not wanting to continue on the path that they were on. But so many times, because we lack compassion, we are not attractive to hurting people. Hurting people are not attracted to self-righteous people. In fact, self-righteous people find mercy and compassion to be repulsive. And if we're honest, sometimes we fall into that category, don't we? I know I have. I know there are certainly people in my life or in in the world that I look at and I say, you deserve to be marginalized. You, You deserve to not be shown mercy. You deserve not to be shown compassion. And then we reflect on the compassion and mercy that God has shown to us and how he desires us to show that type of mercy and compassion and care for others. And so we have to open our, our arms to the marginalized. Not just the marginalized that other people have marginalized, but the people that we have marginalized. The people that we said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Why did you do that? And they begin to realize, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And then we, we don't say, well... Until you make it right, I'm not going to forgive you. Until you fix everything, I'm not going to let you back in. We open our arms and say, come home. Come home, because that's all we desire. All we desire is mercy, not sacrifice. And then secondly, ask, what do hurting people need rather than what will well people think? Think about that for a second. We need to be the kind of people who ask, what do hurting people need rather than what will well people think? Jesus wasn't concerned with what do the well people think about my care for the sick people. Jesus was only concerned about what do the sick people need? What do the hurting people need? So many times we are worried, what will all of the religious people think? What will all of my friends think? If I make friends with them, if I reach out to them, if I open my arms to those people, what will all of my friends and family think? Jesus wasn't concerned with what will the well people think. He was concerned with what do the hurting people need? That needs to be the question we ask. What do hurting people need? That's what compassion and care is all about. It's about what do hurting people need? What is in their best interest? Not what do they deserve, but what do they need? We have to stop asking what do they deserve, and we have to start asking what do they need? That's what compassion and care is all about. And then finally, number three, be celebratory rather than cynical when anyone moves in the right direction. See, we have this tendency, don't we? At least I have this tendency to be cynical when certain people make a move in the right direction. When they start doing things that are good and right, and we say, yeah, well, you know, they're just saying that, or they're just doing that, or that's just a show, or that's just a facade, or they're really just a hypocrite. And they just want you to think that they've changed, but they haven't really changed. Just watch. They'll mess up again. Jesus teaches us not to be cynical, but to be celebratory. Celebratory, not cynical. We need to celebrate when anyone moves in the right direction. Yes, what they did was wrong. What they said was wrong. Yes, they come from a group of people that everybody has said they don't deserve compassion. They don't deserve mercy because of how they vote, because of how they think, because of what they've said. But instead of being cynical, when I see someone making a move in the right direction, I want to be celebratory. I want to say, yes, that's exactly the way we ought to be. And we ought to be moving toward one another rather than away from one another, showing each other compassion and care because we're all on this journey together. And there's another thing, that Jesus is perfect, yet he's the one who's willing to do all of these things for those who are so very imperfect. And if Jesus, who is the master, can get down and get on his hands and knees and roll up his sleeves and get dirty to wash the feet of other people, people that are sinful and broken, Have made bad choices and done bad things, then certainly we who have also made bad choices and done bad things can show compassion and care to one another. Who do we think we are to say, I've been too good. I've made too good of decisions. I'm too righteous to go and to care for those kind of people. If Jesus, who is the perfect one, who is the shepherd, could leave heaven and come here to rescue us, then we ought to be about the same type of business. We have to be the kind of people who desire mercy, not sacrifice, who are asking what do hurting people need, not what will well people think. If we're going to follow the example of Jesus, if we're going to fix our eyes on him, these are the kinds of things that we will be intentional intentional about making sure are part of our life. I love all of you and I appreciate you so very much. This is something that we all struggle with and we're all working on. If we can help or encourage you, please let us know how. We hope that you have a wonderful rest of the week. God bless you. Take care.